Father God, we praise you for the glorious work you've done in Christ, for the gospel of grace in which we stand, for all eternity. Lord, we thank you that there is one gospel to cling to, that it is of the utmost value to us. Help us to see it as valuable and count all else as lost. Lord, we thank you for your gospel where we can find hope. We thank you for your church, for its unity in, around, and under Christ, our head, cornerstone. Lord, help us to stand in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Equip us by your word and spirit to do so. Help us to see Christ clearly in your word now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What has it taken to get you where you are today? How much money has been spent on you from the time you were born until now? How many hours of teaching and training have others poured into you? How many loving, selfless decisions have others made to get you where you are today? How much work have you put in yourself? Maybe it's seemed like people have taken from you more than they've poured into you, and you've had to overcome. You've had to earn things yourself. When you needed help the most, no one was there. Instead, people seem to add obstacles to your life rather than help you through them. So maybe more than others, you've earned what you have. How much of God's providence, his invisible guidance, has gone into bringing you to where you are? How many chance encounters or random events have happened to result in you being the person you are, to being where you are in life? None of us think we are who we are apart from our past. None of us think we are who we are apart from our past. The only reason you are who you are is because of all the decisions, events, and people that have led up to you being you. All those things have played a part in making you who you are. All the work that's gone into you, making you you, all of that work is important. That's why when we get to know someone, we ask them about their likes and dislikes, about their hobbies, but also their histories. All the work that's gone into making you, you, is important. But what work has gone into bringing salvation here this morning? What's it taken to bring the gospel to this church in this hot, random point in the middle of Texas? What's it taken to bring salvation to you. This morning, we'll look at the work that went into bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. By Gentiles, we'll say that word a lot. You've heard that word a lot this morning. This means ethnically non-Jewish people. We'll look at the work that went into bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. And the nature of that work, what kind of work it is, is important for us to know. It's important for us to know what kind of work it takes to bring us the gospel, 
Because it tells us something about who we are. And it tells us something about what work we've been called to do, too. This morning we're looking at what's often called Paul's first missionary journey. We'll follow Paul, that great missionary, church planner, theologian, the, the writer of 13 books of the New Testament, God's chosen instrument of bringing the gospel to the Gentiles, to kings, to the children of Israel. The work we see Paul and Barnabas called to is really an extension of God's work. God has worked mightily to accomplish salvation, to bring about salvation for his people. This hasn't been a lazy, easy work for him, a kind of casual decree from an unconcerned king who sits on his throne, casually waving his hand and effortlessly changing a law that he doesn't really care about. No. God's work of salvation is mighty and powerful. He doesn't sit back carelessly. He lovingly storms into the world he's created and saves. How has he done this? He's done this, as we've heard over and over this morning, by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to take on flesh, become a man, and do what no man in human history ever has, ever will, or ever could. He lived a perfectly sinless life. He lived a life perfectly honoring the Father, loving him from the deepest part of his heart. And from that deep well of love, he perfectly, gently, compassionately loved all those around him. He was perfectly righteous, perfectly holy, perfectly just. And he went willingly to the cross to bear the punishment of death that guilty sinners deserve. On that cross, he paid in full for every sin of every one of his people. And then he died. And three days later, he rose again, conquering the grave, winning life for his people, eternal life. In Christ, God accomplished salvation for his people. Lost, perishing, rebellious people have been saved, rescued by God, splitting apart the heavens, storming into earth, and going humbly, lowly to the cross. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the message of saving grace that's coming here to us this morning. That's the message that God calls each one of us to believe, each one of us sitting here this morning. It's called to repent, to turn from sin, and trust in Christ alone for your righteousness, for your salvation, for your just standing before God, for your life. And as we've seen in our study of Acts, Acts has been showing the, the spread of that gospel, that message. The risen Jesus says in 1.8, Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The saving grace of God that began on the cross, that began with a small gathering of apostles and disciples, started to spread among the Jewish people in Jerusalem. Quickly, thousands were added to the church there. Then it soon does something surprising to many of the Jews. Gentiles start believing too. 
Paul's first missionary journey isn't the first time the gospel goes to the Gentiles. It's already been spreading to them. We saw the Ethiopian eunuch and Cornelius, the Roman centurion, converted. Then more and more Gentiles start to believe. If you flip back a page in your Bible to chapter 11, starting in verse 19, it says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, that is, Greeks, non-Jewish Greeks. They spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Antioch is a city not too far north of Israel, and the gospel spread there almost accidentally as a result of persecution. But now, in chapters 13 and 14, it's going beyond Israel and the surrounding area. It's not spreading, as one church historian puts it, by gossip. It's not spreading by gossip, uh, informally, uh, by individual Christians kind of telling their neighbors about the gospel that they'd heard and believed. It was spreading at this point by housewives and merchants and farmers, spread by gossip informally. But now, it shoots out like a flaming arrow into the dark pagan world. God shoots his hands down from heaven and parts every obstacle standing in the way of the gospel, the good news. He parts every obstacle that's preventing the gospel from arriving in the cities, the ears, and the hearts of exactly where he wants it to land. As Habakkuk 3 says, When God rode on his chariot of salvation, his splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. The gospel going to the Gentiles isn't new. What's new here in our passage this morning is the deliberate work, the intentional sending of missionaries with one purpose, spreading the gospel. So let's look at that work, the work that's brought the good news to you, to us sitting here this morning, to Gentiles here in Texas, to rebel sinners like you and like me. What kind of work has it taken to bring us salvation? What kind of work do Paul and Barnabas take up? It's spiritual work, it's word work, it's witnessing work, and it's church work. It's spiritual work, word work, it's witnessing work, and it's church work. Let's look at the first one. First, this is clearly spiritual work. By that, first and foremost, I mean it's a work of the Holy Spirit. 
the third person of the Trinity. It's spiritual because it's his work through and through. It's begun by him, it's carried out in him, it's supported by him, validated by him, and effective only because of him. Look at verses 1 and 2 in chapter 13. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. It's the Spirit, Luke says, who calls Paul and Barnabas to this work. The time is fulfilled. The Spirit now calls for the fulfillment of what Christ himself said over a decade earlier. If you turn back to chapter 9, verses 15 and 16, after Christ has arrested, taken hold of Paul and converted him, there Jesus tells Ananias that Paul, or Saul, Paul is just his Greek name, Saul is his Hebrew name, Jesus tells Ananias that he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And now in chapter 13, the Spirit of Christ is going to start to use that instrument. So back here in chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas are sent out by the Holy Spirit. It says again in verse 4, And the fact that it's the Spirit working in and through them is confirmed throughout their mission. He not only sends them out, he is with them evidently throughout their mission. The main way we see this is through the miracles, the signs, the wonders we read about this morning. In the first story from their journey, we see a government official, Sergius Paulus, converted after he sees a miracle performed. Paul blinds this musician, magician, who's trying to oppose the Lord, oppose the gospel, oppose the salvation of this man. So Paul, full of the Holy Spirit, in verse 9, has harsh words for someone trying to create a stumbling block for the faith of the proconsul. And he performs a miracle. Later, towards the end of their journey, Paul performs another miracle, healing a crippled man who springs to his feet right away. The Holy Spirit's working many miracles in Paul and Barnabas, but Luke chooses these two to highlight. These are the two we get to hear more details about. Why is that? Luke tells us plainly what the purpose of all the miracles are. If you look at chapter 14, verse 2, between these two miracles, Luke says, So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. As we've seen already in Acts, the miracles are called signs because they're pointing to something. They point people to the word, the word that the people who are doing the miracles are saying. The miracles are validating the word. Luke chooses these two to highlight, think, because they tie Paul to the other apostles, to the twelve, and specifically tie him to Peter. Paul's gospel, Luke's saying, is the same as Peter's gospel. Peter, 
has already dealt with a deceitful magician in chapter 8. And he heals a crippled man in chapter 3. It might be good this afternoon after lunch to read through the book of Galatians. It's a shorter letter of Paul's. doesn't take much time. Paul uses a good chunk of that letter to defend his gospel and says he's preaching the same gospel as the other apostles. He takes a good chunk of his letter to the Galatians to say, what I'm saying, what I've been saying for years, is the same exact thing that the other apostles are saying. And here, back in Acts, we have the Spirit validating that claim. But the great miracle that the Holy Spirit works in these chapters is the miracle of conversion, of granting faith. The Spirit sends out Paul and Barnabas. He validates their message with miracles. And he works effectively, works powerfully through them to bring his people to salvation. Conversion, as we heard just a few weeks ago from Pastor Nathan, is the great and miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. Paul and Barnabas want to see people converted. That's why they're doing what they're doing. That's why they're going out. They've been sent out to see people converted, to make believers, Christians, disciples. That's the fruit that they want to see from their work. And it's only by the Spirit that Paul and Barnabas see any fruit from their ministry. They travel around scattering seed, preaching the gospel, but it's only the Spirit who allows them to see any fruit from it. Paul himself affirms this in his letter to the Corinthians, his first letter, chapter 3, he says, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believe, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. Paul knows that unless God builds the house, the people labor in vain. Church, let's not labor in vain. Let's prayerfully depend on the Spirit in all our work, in our, our work in our lives individually, in our work in our life together as a church, in our personal evangelism, in our discipleship, in our weekly ministry together here on Sunday mornings, the ministry God's given us is a ministry of the Spirit. The Spirit dwells in the church. And by the Spirit, we've been empowered, enabled, equipped to work the work of God and to bring forth fruit. What will that look like? What will a spiritual ministry look like? First and foremost, that means that our work, our life together as a church, will be marked by prayer. As Nathan showed last week, the main play we have to run is prayer. As we pray, we confess that it's truly the Spirit's work, not ours, that accomplishes anything. A spiritual work will be marked by prayer. A spiritual work will also create a church that's marked by godliness, the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Do these mark all our interactions? The Spirit will bear fruit in us that makes us like Christ. Let's pray that God would bear Christ-like, meek, gentle, self-denying fruit in our congregation. 
spiritual work will also not only make us look like Christ, it will be all about Christ. The main work of the Spirit, Jesus says, is to glorify Him. So a mark of a spiritual church is Christ-centeredness. Christ is the cornerstone. Christ is the head of this church. So all we do ought to have His glory and His praise as its goal. From building blocks to the main service to the girls' bake sale, Christ should be the center, the aim, the cornerstone of it all. Paul's ministry, like ours, is a spiritual ministry. His work is a spiritual work. He's sent by the Spirit. He works by the Spirit. He wants to see the Spirit work in the lives of others, bearing spiritual fruit. And as we look at the rest of Paul's ministry and his letters, we see that the fruit he wants to see, the work of the Spirit, is the fruit of faith, unity in Christ, and love. He doesn't want or expect non-stop, miraculous craze. And he doesn't plant cold, dead, intellectual institutions. He wants spiritual, living, believing, loving, fruit. The results of Paul's spiritual ministry is spiritual fruit. Look at verse 52 in chapter 13. The result of Paul's spiritual work is spirit-filled, joyful disciples. Paul plants, God gives the growth. What seeds Paul and Barnabas planting? What feeds the growth? The answer is the word. Paul and Barnabas' work is word work. Their work is word work. Their mission, in other words, is to preach the Bible. The miracles might be what stand out most to us as we read through this passage this morning because they're miraculous. They're extraordinary. They stand out. They don't happen. We don't see them in ordinary life. But really, it's the Word that dominates this passage. From the start of their journey, they proclaim the Word of God in the synagogue. It's the teaching of the Lord that Sergius Paulus is amazed by. It's a word of encouragement the Jews in Antioch and Pisidia want to hear. It's a sermon that takes up most of chapter 13. It's the word of God that people gather to hear that Paul speaks. It's the word of the Lord that the Gentiles glorify. When Paul gets to Iconium and uh, Lyconia, he preaches the gospel in synagogues. and He preaches to pagans. We have another sermon of his in chapter 14. And it's the preaching of the gospel in Derbe that makes disciples. The preached word is unmistakably the main character in Paul's first missionary journey. Their work was spiritual work. Their work was word work. And these two works always go together. The Spirit works through the Word. The Spirit always works through the Word to accomplish His saving purposes. Word and Spirit are like bow and arrow. Try going hunting with just one or the other. The Word without Spirit is empty. The spirit without word is blind. We've already seen Luke link these two, the word and the spirit. He's linked them together when he said that the spirit bears witness to the word through signs and wonders. But look just before that passage to another way that Luke connects the work of the spirit with the work of the word. Read along with me starting in 1348. 
And when the Gentiles heard this, they, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. It's clearly God's Spirit who's effective, who effectually calls people to salvation in Antioch in Pisidia. A different city, by the way, from Antioch where Paul and Barnabas are sent out. It's the Spirit who effectually calls people to salvation there. Those who God appoints to eternal life, the elect, believe. Everyone, not one more, not one less. But a mere five verses later, what does Luke say it is that causes a great number of both Jews and Greeks to believe? It's Paul speaking in such a way. Word and spirit. Spirit working effectively through the word. The word goes out through Paul in a clear and true and understandable way. And the spirit works in an effectual way in the hearts of God's people. So is it the effectual calling of the spirit? that saves these people? Or is it the word that Paul speaks that saves these people? Yes, both. What is it about the way that Paul speaks? What is it about the way that Paul speaks? Let's look at Paul's two sermons we have recorded here. The first one starts in 1316. The first thing to notice notice about this first sermon is obvious, but I think it needs to be said. Paul's word work is verbal. It's out loud. He uses words. This is how God's chosen to communicate the saving grace of Christ, through words. Christ worked effectually on the cross. He says it is finished. He works effectually on the cross. The Spirit works effectually in the hearts of the people of God. It's the preached word that bridges the gap between those two, between Christ and your heart. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. There's a famous phrase that's attributed to various people in church history. Preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. Preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. It's a cute saying. And it's right insofar as it encourages us to live holistic gospel lives. We don't compartmentalize. We don't talk about the gospel sometimes and live a totally different way that doesn't comport with our gospel during the week. So the phrase is a helpful reminder to live consistently. But it's unhelpful when thinking about preaching the gospel. Preaching, evangelizing, proclaiming, is necessarily a verbal thing. We preach the word here, Sunday mornings, now, because we confess that we need to hear truth, words, instruction, correction, encouragement. We need to have our thinking changed, corrected, and guided 
in a heavenward direction. And that comes only from hearing God's word. Hearing it read, expounded, explained, sung. We preach the gospel to our children, to our neighbors, and to the lost because we confess that faith comes through the ear, through the mind, changing our thinking as well as changing our hearts. Our neighbors, our nephews, our grandchildren won't come to saving faith by us doing enough nice things for them. They, just like us, need to hear truth. They need someone to tell them they have a problem. The only solution is Christ. Christ needs to be preached to be believed on. Christ needs to be proclaimed to be someone's Savior. So Paul preaches. He preaches verbally. And he preaches scripturally. Paul's entire sermon here in the synagogue is either a summary of Scripture, direct quotations from Scripture, or implications from Scripture. He's doing what the priests in Nehemiah 8.8 do, who read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Paul does what he tells Timothy to do. Preach the word. Paul's work is word work. And that word is the word of God. It's scripture. It's God-breathed, spirit-inspired scripture. And the subject of the scriptures, all of scripture, Paul shows here is Christ. Paul's work is word work, it's scripture work, it's also Christ work. And that's actually a redundant statement. To say scripture work should imply Christ's work. Because Christ, the incarnate word, is the subject of all the inspired word. Paul's sermon has scripture as its basis and Christ as its content. He shows in the sermon that Christ is what the history of Israel, the whole history of Israel was leading to. Christ is what the Psalms and the prophets talk about. Christ himself is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament law and all of its promises. Paul preaches Christ and Christ crucified from the Scriptures. There's no other faithful way to preach the Scriptures. There's no greater need we have than to hear Christ preach from the Scripture. Paul preaches this way because it's Christ we need to know, to believe in, to love, and to be made like. We need to know all the Bible, but ultimately it's not knowing Bible facts that saves us. It's knowing Christ. It's trusting in Christ, who the Bible's all about, that saves. So we need to hear Christ preached. But we need to hear Christ preached in a way that we understand. So Paul preaches in a way that his hearers understand. He preaches a scripture-rich, historical sermon to the Jewish synagogue. That makes sense. Everyone there was probably very familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. But in Lystra, in chapter 14, verses 15 through 17, his sermon, it's just as scriptural, but he doesn't assume his hearers know what the Jews know. 
So he starts with basic scriptural truths about monotheism, about creation, common grace. All truths revealed clearly, understood only if we know the scriptures. But if you look at the end of verse 17, if you were listening as Megan was reading, he never gets to Christ. He doesn't get to mention Christ. I think we can assume that Paul gets cut off here. I think Paul intends to preach Christ, but the crowd overwhelms him and doesn't let him finish. Three chapters later, Paul preaches an almost identical sermon in Athens. The climax of that sermon is Christ. It starts off the same way, and he clearly preaches Christ. If you've ever heard of Jonathan Edward, you've probably heard of his most famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Edward's in it goes on and on about the fearful reality of God's righteous judgment before beginning his conclusion by saying, and now you have an extraordinary opportunity, a day wherein Christ has flung the door of mercy wide open and stands in the door calling and crying with a loud voice to poor sinners, a day wherein many are flocking to him and pressing into the kingdom of God. Many are daily coming from the east, west, north, and south. Many that were very lately in the same miserable condition that you are in are in now a happy state, with their hearts filled with love to him that has loved them and washed them for their sins in his own blood and rejoicing in hope of the glory of God. But Edwards never got to say that. The cries of the crowd for mercy were so overwhelming that he never got to preach mercy. I think something similar happens here in Lystra. Paul always intends to preach Christ, to preach him in a way that the audience can hear and understand and believe. Paul's not just coldly standing, presenting the gospel. He's pleading with people. He's using reason. He's trying to persuade them. He's trying to speak in such a way that many believe. God's so kind to speak to us in a way that we can understand and believe. God deals kindly and compassionately with us. He speaks to us in language we can understand, speaking plainly, using pretty elementary illustration. The all-wise God hasn't spoken to us in a way that maybe an arrogant college professor might. Have you ever talked with someone who doesn't care if you understand what they're talking about, who only wants to show off just how much they know about the subject? It's unhelpful, it's off-putting, it's arrogant, and in the end, it's just unconvincing. But that's not how God speaks to us. God speaks simply, kindly, and compassionately. Let's have that same posture as we talk to others about Christ. Let's be truthful, but at the same time, be helpful. Whether it's an unbeliever, child, we're another member of this church. Let's preach Christ simply, clearly, and helpfully. We're not all called to be missionaries. We're not all called to be vocational teachers or preachers of God's Word. But we are called to help others, to minister to others by speaking the truth in love. So let's grow in our understanding of the gospel for the sake of others, 
Let's know God's word. Let's be gospel fluent so that we can help one another, so that we can point one another to Christ, to the Christ that we know we need. We're not all missionaries, but we are word people. You know how unique that is? In our very visual society, in a world of entertainment and news clips and TikToks and podcasts, we're word people. We're people who have been captivated by a text, a book. People who wake up early to read. People who get together on Sundays and sometimes during the week to hear and talk about a piece of literature. Divine literature, but it's a piece of literature. We've been saved by word work. Now we're a people of the word. Paul and Barnabas' work is spiritual work, word work, and it's witnessing work. What do I mean by witnessing? I mean that in addition to their verbally preaching, they're called to witness, to be martyrs. That's what the word martyr means, a witness. Physically suffering to bear witness to Christ and his worthiness. Paul's work isn't just a day job for him. It's not a hobby It's a life-consuming, eventually a life-taking task. The spread of the gospel to the glory of God is his sole purpose. And if he must suffer for it, he's more than willing. Remember Jesus Christ, he writes to Timothy. Risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, Bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything, including suffering, for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. As the elect come to faith through the work of the word and spirit, God's glory is spread throughout the world to the end of the earth. Paul works, he prays, he preaches, and he suffers for the sake of the elect to the glory of God. He's not just willing to do this, to suffer. He knows that it's necessary that he suffer. He's been called to suffer. Remember his calling from Christ himself in chapter 9? He's a chosen instrument of mine, Jesus says, to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Why must he suffer? To pay for the sin that he committed previously? To make up for all the wrong he'd done to the church? No, it's because his suffering will show how much he values Christ. You want to see how valuable something is to someone? See how willing they are to suffer for it. Whoever's going to win states in football this year is probably the team that values it the most. And the team that values that state title the most is going to be suffering the most right now in the August heat while they're training. Their suffering now tells us something about what they value. And Paul, the great sinner who persecuted Christ's church, is now called to suffer greatly 
to show just how much he values Christ and the grace that he's been given, to show just how changed his heart really is. With each stone that hits Paul, with each whip across his back, with each weary step through the mountains of Turkey, he's displaying the glory, the worthiness of Christ, his Lord and his God. Suffering isn't unique to Paul or just a few missionaries. This is the way. Suffering is the only way. Look at the end of our passage in 14, 21, and 22. They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Paul's encouraging them to endure suffering, to persevere, because suffering is the way. It's coming to them. Lowliness, being despised, dishonored, treated poorly. Indeed, all those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He'll write to Timothy. Suffering is the way, because suffering is Christ's way. The way up, it's said, is down. The way to glory is the way of humility. Christ now lives and reigns, but only after humiliation and suffering. So it is with us. Christ alone suffered for sin, for our sins. So our suffering doesn't pay for our sins. Paul's suffering didn't pay for his. It doesn't earn us any righteousness before God but it does draw us nearer to Him. Our suffering draws us nearer to our suffering Savior, sanctifying us, preparing us for glory with Him. The way of Christ is the way of Paul, our way too. We shouldn't seek suffering. I'm not saying that. and Sometimes it's wise to avoid suffering. But there are times, there will be times, when we're called to bear witness to Christ, to show the world just how much we value Him, and do that by suffering. For most of us, that won't look like Paul. It won't look like being burned at the stake in a Roman Colosseum. It won't look like suffering in the cold wilderness of Pennsylvania like David Brainerd. But it will look like choosing Christ over reputation, over financial gain over love, over friendship, over status, perhaps even over our own lives. And being faithful to suffer in small ways, in daily trials, will prepare us if the Lord should ever call us to suffer in great ways. I'm sure Paul wasn't complaining about small daily struggles, only to endure with perfect patience much greater trials. But what Paul's life shows us, church, is that it's worth it. Christ is worth it. There's an eternal weight of glory, glory given to Christ and graciously shared with us at the end of suffering that makes us willing to suffer. This work, what I'm calling witnessing work, is connected to the work of the Word and Spirit. It's the word that tells us about Christ and his value. It's the word and spirit that reorient our priorities and our values. 
So live by the word. Walk by the spirit. Spend time gazing on Christ with eyes of faith in the word. It's only with eyes fixed on him that we'll see clearly to choose him over fleeting pleasures, worldly comforts, any distractions that will keep us from suffering for the sake of others, for the sake of the glory of Christ. We probably won't be called to suffer in the same way as Paul, but we do stand in the stream of people who have, through history, been willing to suffer, willing to give themselves for the church. Paul works, he preaches, suffers for the church. His work is church work. We see in the beginning of chapter 13 that he's sent out from the church in Antioch. And at the end of the journey, before he returns, he and Barnabas appointed elders for them in every church. And with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Paul's work is church work. Spiritual word and witnessing work. And it's all that spiritual word and witnessing work is done to create and strengthen local churches. To call out individuals scattered throughout the world and gather them together around Christ. Our gathering as a church is some of the most important missions work we can do. It's some of the most evangelistic work we can do. It's through the church, local churches, that the manifold wisdom of God is now being made known, says Paul in Ephesians 3. Because it's in churches where the word is preserved and propped up and displayed. The church is the pillar and buttress of the truth, Paul tells Titus. Churches give structure and leadership and accountability to preserve sound doctrine and to preserve the souls of believers. We gather and say, this is God's word, this is what we believe. So we, like Paul, appoint elders and teachers to do word work, to equip us to do that, to say this is the word, this is sound doctrine. We also gather together and tell one another, keep believing. Christ is worth it. We gather together and pray to bear burdens, to share struggles. We gather together and help ease one another's suffering. We gather together as a witness to the work that God's done through His Word and His Spirit to call us out from the world, draw us near to Himself, and draw us together. This also means that the mission's work we support should be focused on planting churches. Paul doesn't think that individual Christians scattered throughout the Roman Empire are going to be able to grow in the Spirit, endure suffering, and persevere to the end. He doesn't think that. Neither should we. That's why we give financial support to churches and to pastors overseas who are committed to building healthy churches. It's an act of love. It's a matter of God's glory to support and send people who, who do more than just care for physical needs in foreign countries. And it's just as much an act of love to send people who will do more than just evangelize, but seek to build healthy churches. After visiting the churches they planted, Paul and Barnabas returned to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God 
for the work that they had fulfilled. They fulfilled the work God called them to do. God accomplished his work through them. God always accomplishes his work, his saving work in and through his people. Paul himself tells the Philippians, who will visit on his next missionary journey, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What work has God begun in us? What work is he promising to complete? What work is he using us for? It's a spiritual work. It's a word work. It's a witnessing work. And it's a church work. So who are we? The work God's doing teaches us who we are. We're a spirit people saved by grace alone. We're a word people who crave the word the way newborns crave milk. We're a witness to the world willing to suffer for Christ who we value most. And we're a church called together under Christ, our head, called together to love, to serve, to encourage, to watch over and care for one another so that God might see his perfect saving work in Christ through to the end. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your work, for your saving work in Christ. We praise you for your ongoing work in our lives, in our life together as a church. We pray that you would continue to work. We cling to that promise that you are working in us. Work in us by your word and your spirit. Grant endurance through suffering to the praise of your glorious grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.